Chapter Two of A House to Let. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. A House to Let by Charles Dickens, Wilkie Collins, Elizabeth Gaskell, Adelaide Anne Proctor. Chapter Two: The Manchester Marriage. Mr. and Mrs. Openshaw came from Manchester to London and took the house to let. He had been, what is called in Lancashire, a salesman for a large manufacturing firm who were extending their business and opening a warehouse in London, where Mr. Openshaw was now to superintend the business. He rather enjoyed the change of residence, having a kind of curiosity about London which he had never yet been able to gratify in his brief visits to the metropolis. At the same time, he had an odd, shrewd contempt for the inhabitants, whom he had always pictured to himself as fine, lazy people, caring nothing but for fashion and aristocracy, and lounging away their days in Bond Street and such places, ruining good English, and ready in their turn to despise him as a provincial. The hours that the men of business kept in the city scandalised him too, accustomed as he was to the early dinners of Manchester folk, and the consequently far longer evenings. Still he was pleased to go to London, though he would not for the world have confessed it even to himself, and always spoke of the step to his friends as one demanded of him by the interests of his employers, and sweetened to him by a considerable increase of salary. His salary, indeed, was so liberal that he might have been justified in taking a much larger house than this one, had he not thought himself bound to set an example to Londoners of how little a Manchester man of business cared for show. Inside, however, he furnished the house with an unusual degree of comfort, and in the winter-time he insisted on keeping up as large fires as the grates would allow in every room where the temperature was in the least chilly. Moreover, his northern sense of hospitality was such that if he were at home he could hardly suffer a visitor to leave the house without forcing meat and drink upon him. Every servant in the house was well warmed, well fed, and kindly treated, for their master scorned all petty saving in aught that conduced to comfort, while he amused himself by following out all his accustomed habits and individual ways in defiance of what any of his new neighbours might think. His wife was a pretty, gentle woman of suitable age and character. He was forty-two, she thirty-five. He was loud and decided, she soft and yielding. They had two children, or rather, I should say, she had two, for the elder, a girl of eleven, was Mrs. Openshaw's child by Frank Wilson, her first husband. The younger was a little boy, Edwin, who could just prattle, and to whom his father delighted to speak in the broadest and most unintelligible Lancashire dialect, in order to keep up what he called the true Saxon accent. Mrs. Openshaw's Christian name was Alice, and her first husband had been her own cousin. She was the orphan niece of a sea-captain in Liverpool, a quiet, grave little creature, of great personal attraction when she was fifteen or sixteen, 
with regular features and a blooming complexion. But she was very shy, and believed herself to be very stupid and awkward, and was frequently scolded by her aunt, her own uncle's second wife. So when her cousin, Frank Wilson, came home from a long absence at sea, and first was kind and protective to her, secondly attentive, and thirdly desperately in love with her, she hardly knew how to be grateful enough to him. It is true she would have preferred his remaining in the first or second stages of behaviour, for his violent love puzzled and frightened her. Her uncle neither helped nor hindered the love affair, though it was going on under his own eyes. Frank's stepmother had such a variable temper that there was no knowing whether what she liked one day she would like the next or not. At length she went to such extremes of crossness that Alice was only too glad to shut her eyes and rush blindly at the chance of escape from domestic tyranny offered her by a marriage with her cousin. And liking him better than any one in the world except her uncle, who was at this time at sea, she went off one morning and was married to him, her only bridesmaid being the housemaid at her aunt's. The consequence was that Frank and his wife went into lodgings, and Mrs. Wilson refused to see them, and turned away Nora, the warm-hearted housemaid, whom they accordingly took into their service. When Captain Wilson returned from his voyage, he was very cordial with the young couple, and spent many an evening at their lodgings, smoking his pipe and sipping his grog. But he told them that, for quietness' sake, he could not ask them to his own house for his wife was bitter against them. They were not very unhappy about this. The seed of future unhappiness lay rather in Frank's vehement, passionate disposition, which led him to resent his wife's shyness and want of demonstration as failures in conjugal duty. He was already tormenting himself and her too in a slighter degree, by apprehensions and imaginations of what might befall her during his approaching absence at sea. At last he went to his father, and urged him to insist upon Alice's being once more received under his roof, the more especially as there was now a prospect of her confinement, while her husband was away on his voyage. Captain Wilson was, as he himself expressed it, breaking up and unwilling to undergo the excitement of a scene. Yet he felt that what his son said was true, so he went to his wife. And before Frank went to sea, he had the comfort of seeing his wife installed in her old little garret in his father's house. To have placed her in the one best spare room was a step beyond Mrs. Wilson's powers of submission or generosity. The worst part about it, however, was that the faithful Nora had to be dismissed. Her place as housemaid had been filled up, and even had it not, she had forfeited Mrs. Wilson's good opinion for ever. She comforted her young master and mistress by pleasant prophecies of the time when they would have a household of their own, of which, in whatever service she might be in the meantime, she would be sure to form part. 
Almost the last action Frank Wilson did before setting sail was going with Alice to see Nora once more at her mother's house, and then he went away. Alice's father-in-law grew more and more feeble as winter advanced. She was of great use to her stepmother in nursing and amusing him, and although there was anxiety enough in the household, there was perhaps more of peace than there had been for years. For Mrs. Wilson had not a bad heart, and was softened by the visible approach of death to one whom she loved, and touched by the lonely condition of the young creature, expecting her first confinement in her husband's absence. To this relenting mood Nora owed the permission to come and nurse Alice when her baby was born, and to remain to attend on Captain Wilson. Before one letter had been received from Frank, who had sailed for the East Indies and China, his father died. Alice was always glad to remember that he had held her baby in his arms, and kissed and blessed it before his death. After that, and the consequent examination into the state of his affairs, it was found that he had left far less property than people had been led by his style of living to imagine, and what money there was was all settled upon his wife and at her disposal after her death. This did not signify much to Alice, as Frank was now first mate of his ship, and in another voyage or two would be captain. Meanwhile he had left her some hundreds, all his savings, in the bank. It became time for Alice to hear from her husband. One letter from the Cape she had already received. The next was to announce his arrival in India. As week after week passed over, and no intelligence of the ship's arrival reached the office of the owners, and the captain's wife was in the same state of ignorant suspense as Alice herself, her fears grew most oppressive. At length the day came when, in reply to her inquiry at the shipping office, they told her that the owners had given up hope of ever hearing more of the Betsy Jane, and had sent in their claim upon the underwriters. Now that he was gone for ever, she first felt a yearning, longing love for the kind cousin, the dear friend, the sympathising protector, whom she should never see again first felt a passionate desire to show him his child, whom she had hitherto rather craved to have all to herself, her own sole possession. Her grief was, however, noiseless and quiet, rather to the scandal of Mrs. Wilson, who bewailed her stepson as if he and she had always lived together in perfect harmony, and who evidently thought it her duty to burst into fresh tears at every strange face she saw, dwelling on his poor young widow's desolate state, and the helplessness of the fatherless child with an unction, as if she liked the excitement of the sorrowful story. So passed away the first days of Alice's widowhood. By and by things subsided into their natural and tranquil course. But, as if this young creature was always to be in some heavy trouble, 
her ewe lamb began to be ailing, pining and sickly. The child's mysterious illness turned out to be some affection of the spine, likely to affect health, but not to shorten life, at least so the doctors said. But the long dreary suffering of one whom a mother loves as Alice loved her only child is hard to look forward to. Only Nora guessed what Alice suffered. No one but God knew. And so it fell out that when Mrs. Wilson the Elder came to her one day in violent distress, occasioned by a very material diminution in the value of the property that her husband had left her, a diminution which made her income barely enough to support herself, much less Alice, the latter could hardly understand how anything which did not touch health or life could cause such grief, and she received the intelligence with irritating composure. But when that afternoon the little sick child was brought in, and the grandmother, who after all loved it well, began a fresh moan over her losses to its unconscious ears, saying how she had planned to consult this or that doctor, and to give it this or that comfort or luxury in after years, but that now all chance of this had passed away, Alice's heart was touched, and she drew near to Mrs. Wilson with unwonted caresses, and in a spirit not unlike to that of Ruth, entreated that come what would, they might remain together. After much discussion in succeeding days, it was arranged that Mrs. Wilson should take a house in Manchester, furnishing it partly with what furniture she had, and providing the rest with Alice's remaining two hundred pounds. Mrs. Wilson was herself a Manchester woman, and naturally longed to return to her native town. Some connections of her own at that time required lodgings, for which they were willing to pay pretty handsomely. Alice undertook the active superintendence and superior work of the household. Nora, willing, faithful Nora, offered to cook, scour, do anything, in short, so that she might but remain with them. The plan succeeded. For some years their first lodgers remained with them, and all went smoothly, with the one sad exception of the little girl's increasing deformity. How that mother loved that child is not for words to tell. Then came a break of misfortune. Their lodgers left, and no one succeeded to them. After some months they had to remove to a smaller house, and Alice's tender conscience was torn by the idea that she ought not to be a burden to her mother-in-law, but ought to go out and seek her own maintenance. And leave her child. The thought came like the sweeping boom of a funeral bell over her heart. By and by Mr. Openshaw came to lodge with them. He had started in life as the errand-boy and sweeper-out of a warehouse, had struggled up through all the grades of employment in the place, fighting his way through the hard, striving Manchester life, with strong, pushing energy of character. Every spare moment of time had been sternly given up to self-teaching. He was a capital accountant, 
a good French and German scholar, a keen, far-seeing tradesman, understanding markets and the bearing of events both near and distant on trade, and yet with such vivid attention to present details that I do not think he ever saw a group of flowers in the fields without thinking whether their colours would, or would not, form harmonious contrasts in the coming spring muslins and prints. He went to debating societies and threw himself with all his heart and soul into politics, esteeming, it must be owned, every man a fool or a knave who differed from him and overthrowing his opponents rather by the loud strength of his language than the calm strength of his logic. There was something of the Yankee in all this. Indeed, his theory ran parallel to the famous Yankee motto, England flogs creation, and Manchester flogs England. Such a man, as may be fancied, had had no time for falling in love or any such nonsense. At the age when most young men go through their courting and matrimony, he had not the means of keeping a wife, and was far too practical to think of having one. And now that he was in easy circumstances, a rising man, he considered women almost as encumbrances to the world, with whom a man had better have as little to do as possible. His first impression of Alice was indistinct and he did not care enough about her to make it distinct. "'A pretty yea-nay kind of woman,' would have been his description of her, if he had been pushed into a corner. He was rather afraid in the beginning that her quiet ways arose from a listlessness and laziness of character, which would have been exceedingly discordant to his active, energetic nature. But when he found out the punctuality with which his wishes were attended to, and her work was done, when he was called in the morning at the very stroke of the clock, his shaving-water scalding hot, his fire bright, his coffee made exactly as his peculiar fancy dictated, for he was a man who had his theory about everything, based upon what he knew of science, and often perfectly original, then he began to think— not that Alice had any peculiar merit, but that he had got into remarkably good lodgings. His restlessness wore away, and he began to consider himself as almost settled for life in them. Mr. Openshaw had been too busy all his life to be introspective. He did not know that he had any tenderness in his nature, and if he had become conscious of its abstract existence, he would have considered it as a manifestation of disease in some part of his nature. But he was decoyed into pity unawares, and pity led on to tenderness. That little helpless child, always carried about by one of the three busy women of the house, or else patiently threading coloured beads in the chair, from which by no effort of its own could it ever move, the great grave blue eyes, full of serious, not uncheerful, expression, giving to the small delicate face a look beyond its years, the soft plaintive voice dropping out but few words, so unlike the continual prattle of a child, caught Mr. Openshaw's attention in spite of himself. 
One day, he half scorned himself for doing so, he cut short his dinner hour to go in search of some toy which should take the place of those eternal beads. I forget what he bought, but when he gave the present, which he took care to do in a short, abrupt manner, and when no one was by to see him, he was almost thrilled by the flash of delight that came over that child's face, and could not help all through that afternoon going over and over again the picture left on his memory by the bright effect of unexpected joy on the little girl's face. When he returned home, he found his slippers placed by his sitting-room fire, and even more careful attention paid to his fancies than was habitual in those model lodgings. When Alice had taken the last of his tea-things away, she had been silent as usual till then. She stood for an instant with the door in her hand. Mr. Openshaw looked as if he were deep in his book, though in fact he did not see a line, but was heartily wishing the woman would be gone, and not make any palaver of gratitude. But she only said, "'I am very much obliged to you, sir. Thank you very much,' and was gone, even before he could send her away, with a, "'There, my good woman, that's enough.' For some time longer he took no apparent notice of the child. He even hardened his heart into disregarding her sudden flush of colour, and little timid smile of recognition when he saw her by chance. But, after all, this could not last for ever, and having a second time given way to tenderness, there was no relapse. The insidious enemy having thus entered his heart, in the guise of compassion to the child, soon assumed the more dangerous form of interest in the mother. He was aware of this change of feeling, despised himself for it, struggled with it nay, internally yielded to it and cherished it, long before he suffered the slightest expression of it, by word, action, or look, to escape him. He watched Alice's docile, obedient ways to her stepmother, the love which she had inspired in the rough Nora, roughened by the wear and tear of sorrow and years. But above all, he saw the wild, deep, passionate affection existing between her and her child. They spoke little to anyone else, or when anyone else was by but when alone together they talked and murmured and cooed and chattered so continually that Mr. Openshaw first wondered what they could find to say to each other, and next became irritated because they were always so grave and silent with him. All this time he was perpetually devising small new pleasures for the child. His thoughts ran, in a pertinacious way, upon the desolate life before her, and often he came back from his day's work, loaded with the very thing Alice had been longing for, but had not been able to procure. One time it was a little chair for drawing the little sufferer along the streets, and many an evening that ensuing summer Mr. Openshaw drew her along himself, regardless of the remarks of his acquaintances. One day in autumn he put down his newspaper as Alice came in with the breakfast, and said, in as indifferent a voice as he could assume, "'Mrs. Frank, 
is there any reason why we two should not put up our horses together? Alice stood still in perplexed wonder. What did he mean? He had resumed the reading of his newspaper as if he did not expect any answer, so she found silence her safest course, and went on quietly arranging his breakfast, without another word passing between them. Just as he was leaving the house to go to the warehouse as usual, he turned back and put his head into the bright, neat, tidy kitchen where all the women breakfasted in the morning. "'You'll think of what I said, Mrs. Frank?' This was her name with the lodgers. "'And let me have your opinion upon it to-night.' Alice was thankful that her mother and Nora were too busy talking together to attend much to this speech. She determined not to think about it at all through the day, and of course the effort not to think made her think all the more. At night she sent up Nora with his tea, but Mr. Openshaw almost knocked Nora down as she was going out at the door by pushing past her and calling out, "'Mrs. Frank!' in an impatient voice at the top of the stairs. Alice went up, rather than seem to have affixed too much meaning to his words. "'Well, Mrs. Frank,' he said, "'what answer? Don't make it too long, for I have lots of office work to get through to-night.' I, "'I hardly know what you meant, sir,' said truthful Alice. "'Well, I should have thought you might have guessed.' "'You're not new at this sort of work, and I am. "'However, I'll make it plain this time. "'Will you have me to be thy wedded husband, "'and serve me, and love me, and honour me, "'and all that sort of thing? "'Because if you will, I will do as much by you "'and be a father to your child, "'and that's more than is put in the prayer-book. "'Now, I'm a man of my word, and what I say I feel, "'and what I promise I'll do. "'Now, for your answer. Alice was silent. He began to make the tea, as if her reply was a matter of perfect indifference to him, but as soon as that was done, he became impatient. Well, said he, how long, sir, may I have to think over it? Three minutes, looking at his watch. If had two already, that makes five. Be a sensible woman, say yes, and sit down to tea with me and we'll talk it over together. For after tea I shall be busy. Say no. He hesitated a moment to try and keep his voice in the same tone. And I shan't say another word about it, but pay up a year's rent for my rooms to-morrow and be off. Time's up. Yes or no? If you please, sir, you have been so good to little Elsie. There. "'Sit down comfortably by me on the sofa, and let us have our tea together. "'I am glad to find you are as good and sensible as I took for.' "'And this was Alice Wilson's second wooing. "'Mr. Openshaw's will was too strong, and his circumstances too good, "'for him not to carry all before him. "'He settled Mrs. Wilson in a comfortable house of her own, "'and made her quite independent of lodgers.' The little that Alice said with regard to future plans was on Nora's behalf. "'No,' said Mr. Openshaw, "'Nora shall take care of the old lady as long as she lives, and after that she shall either come and live with us, or, if she likes it better, she shall have a provision for life, for your sake, missus.' 
no one who has been good to you or the child shall go unrewarded. But even the little one will be better for some fresh stuff about her. Get her a bright, sensible girl as a nurse, one who won't go rubbing her with calves foot jelly as Nora does, wasting good stuff outside that ought to go in, but will follow doctor's directions, which, as you must see pretty clearly by this time, Nora won't, because they give the poor little wench pain. Now, I'm not above being nesh for other folks myself. I can stand a good blow and never change colour, but set me in the operating-room in the infirmary and I'd turn as sick as a girl. Yet, if need were, I would hold the little wench on my knees while she screeched with pain, if it were to do her poor back good. Nay, nay, wench, keep your white looks for the time when it comes. I don't say it ever will. But this I know. Nora will spare the child and cheat the doctor if she can. Now I say give the bairn a year or two's chance, and then when the pack of doctors have done their best, and maybe the old lady has gone, we'll have Nora back, or do better for her. The pack of doctors could do no good to little Ailsie. She was beyond their power. But her father, for so he insisted on being called, and also on Alice's no longer retaining the appellation of Mamma, but becoming henceforward mother, by his healthy cheerfulness of manner, his clear decision of purpose, his odd turns and quirks of humour, added to his real strong love for the helpless little girl, infused a new element of brightness and confidence into her life. And though her back remained the same, her general health was strengthened, and Alice, never going beyond a smile herself, had the pleasure of seeing her child taught to laugh. As for Alice's own life, it was happier than it had ever been. Mr. Openshaw required no demonstration, no expressions of affection from her. Indeed, these would rather have disgusted him. Alice could love deeply, but could not talk about it. The perpetual requirement of loving words looks and caresses, and misconstruing their absence into absence of love, had been the great trial of her former married life. Now all went on clear and straight, under the guidance of her husband's strong sense, warm heart, and powerful will. Year by year their worldly prosperity increased. At Mrs. Wilson's death, Nora came back to them as nurse to the newly-born little Edwin, into which post she was not installed without a pretty strong oration on the part of the proud and happy father, who declared that if he found out that Nora ever tried to screen the boy by a falsehood, or to make him nesh either in body or mind, she should go that very day. Nora and Mr. Openshaw were not on the most thoroughly cordial terms neither of them fully recognising or appreciating the other's best qualities. This was the previous history of the Lancashire family who had now removed to London, and had come to occupy the house. End of the first part of chapter 2 Recording by Ruth Golding